Nobody knows what's going on when we watch the Olympics. We just turn on our TVs and become obsessed with sports we haven't thought about in four years. This is why we made the Ringer Guide to the Summer Games. I'm your host, Roger Sherman. Each day during the Tokyo Olympics, I'll tell you about a different sport, athlete, or storyline. We'll be releasing new episodes every day starting July 19th. Follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you know exactly how to watch the Olympics. Today on the podcast, we're going to dig into what the hell happened to Chris Paul in Game 4. I have theories. I don't think I have any answers. We'll also talk NBA Finals with Anthony Slater from The Athletic, who's covering it, and on some Warriors draft stuff. And Jordan Ritter-Khan, who is part of, and the man behind, and the narration of the Len Bias What If podcast, the Ringer Podcast Network. And we'll finish it off with Life Advice. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Tired of paying for cable TV? Switch to Hulu Plus Live TV today to watch over 95 live channels for sports, news, shows, and more. Plus, get access to Hulu's entire streaming library with access to Disney Plus and ESPN Plus all in one plan. No long-term contract, no hidden fees, and no clunky cable box. Get Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. It feels as though this podcast needs to open with uh, a statement, perhaps. <laughs> uh, people checking on me after Chris Paul's game four. I appreciate those, the thoughts, the, the well wishes, the kind words. Um, but let's talk about this. Let's, let's dig in to what we saw from one of my favorite guys having one of the worst games. You're going to see somebody from somebody in the NBA Finals. And it was that bad. He was terrible in that game. Uh, Simmons and I talked about it immediately after the game on the Simmons pod. So I imagine a lot of you listen to both, but for those that didn't, I did not want to make excuses for him, which I know is what everybody was wondering. Cause if you don't like Chris Paul, you're like, all right, yep, he sucks. I told you. And we already know this. I mean, it's the same with any of the stars, the quarterbacks, there's the group that likes him, the group that doesn't. And then when we get our evidence, we're really excited about it. And right now for a guy that loves him, I didn't get much evidence from it in game four. So let's kind of examine everything that happened to try to come to some kind of conclusion. All right. Right from the jump. He was weird with the basketball. Now, his end-to-end, for anybody that's like something else is wrong with him, I don't know if it's the wrist or whatever. Um, I'm not going to go there yet because I just don't know. But as far as his legs and his movement and watching him at the beginning of the game, he was crisp. There was energy there. You know, he was moving really well. And for the minutes part of it, it's like, oh, it's starting to catch up to him. They've had three days off in between these games. And I, I just think that one of the worst arguments I've ever heard is that Golden State blew the 3-1 lead because they went for 73 wins. If you listen to somebody that says that if there's somebody that's on TV or somebody like me behind a microphone saying that it's just, I don't, it's such a cop out. It's the dumbest argument. Like, Hey, game fives when golden state actually got tired. And if they had gone for 68 wins with the same amount of travel and the same amount of minutes, they actually would have won the 16 finals. Like it's just dumb. So to say then that Chris Paul, finally the minutes are catching up to him. We saw it in game four. Okay. Maybe I'm not saying it's an impossibility, but it's a really poor excuse for a bad game. The turnovers. He had four 
games against Denver, five turnovers. So five turnovers in four games. Four games against Milwaukee, 17 turnovers. Is it about the defense? The adjustments in game three and four, Drew Holiday picking him up, giving him less time to set up the offense with the shot clock, that is part of it. I also think there's some points where the secondary defender is shading towards him a little bit that should open up other things. It didn't, so that part of it is real. But some of it's just on him. The five turnovers in this game wasn't because of Drew Holiday, and I'm not dismissing Drew's defense. I just gave him credit, but I went through him this morning. First drive, first turnover, drive right side, gets to the baseline, jumps up in the air, turns around, throws it in the air, picked off by Middleton, terrible pass. His next pass was between, uh, between Jay Crowder and Mikhail Bridges, it was at the break. Those guys were separated. He just throws it out of bounds. Terrible pass. Then he has this awful Aiton sequence where later in the game, he drives baseline, tries to thread the needle through all this traffic, throws it behind Aiton. Then drives right side. Aiton's trailing behind him, throws it way behind Aiton again, and that led to a breakout. And then he had the crossover against Giannis, which also led to another breakout. So these weren't just bad turnovers that were – him having a hard time with the basketball or miscalculating the passing angle or just doing something stupid, uh, the fifth turnover ended up to a break where the game was basically over. I noticed on a couple switches where he had Bobby Portis, somebody you figure he was able to get, somebody he was his eyes would light up, Bobby Portis' eyes when he got him in the switch. And he had two out of three possessions where he was just fumbling the basketball as soon as he went to go ahead and make his move. I don't know what that is. If you play in 135 playoff games for your career, which is what Paul is at now, and by the way, he's 13th all-time in player efficiency in NBA history in the playoffs, which actually has been trending down the last four years. Um, there was a stretch there. I think he was top five, like his first seven playoff seasons in the NBA. But if you have those kinds of numbers but have played that many games, there are going to be examples of you having really bad playoff games. I mean, that's all part of it. So that leads us to asking a really difficult question. There's going to be pain in my voice as I ask it. Is the guy who I think is always comfortable and in control actually not comfortable and not in control now because it's at a stage he's never been at before? All right, because I've heard that. Let's examine it. Is Chris Paul so bad in game four because the stakes are this high that now it actually is the NBA Finals? It's like, look, we need this. We're up 2-1. It's kind of like, look, if Phoenix wins that, they're probably winning the NBA title. Now it's still wide open. And that going into the game, because from the jump, he was bad. All right, He made like four shots the whole game. He had one really close at the rim, shook people. Everybody kind of went to help off of him. And he's right at the rim a couple feet away. And he left it short. And that's the kind of stuff where it's like, ooh, are you really thinking about it? Like one of those big free throws where you're going, eh, it's a little tight. It's getting a little tight around here. If you ever had to take one of those free throws, you know the feeling. Obviously, most of us not in the NBA Finals. But. Asking if the guy who I think is always comfortable and cares about winning is now uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with that because I know that's a theory. So let's examine it. When he gets the Lakers, he actually didn't score in double figures for like five of the six games. All right. Only one game he had double figures, but we're also talking about him coming off the shoulder. So like, all right, fine. Denver, he was a maestro. Everything was literally perfect. And was also a horrible matchup because Denver with Jokic is a problem defensively against somebody like Chris Paul. And also, Jokic defensively is as great as he is, you know, something long-term with Denver that you probably have to worry about a little bit. That's a different topic for a different off-season podcast. So was game four about the moment being too big for him? Well, what was game six against the Clippers when he had 41 points and no turnovers? That's kind of a big game, right? 
I mean, yes, he's been in the Western Conference Finals before, but he was hurt with Houston the only other time. So this was his time and his team, especially the revenge factor against the Clippers. There's a lot going on there emotionally. And he looked like the guy that was built for the moment. That was two weeks ago. All right, but no, Ryan, it's the NBA Finals. Okay, it's the NBA Finals. Ten days ago, he had 32 points in game one. The first time he's ever played in the NBA Finals. Again, looking like no one's ever been more built for the moment. So I'm at a loss, all right? I'm at a loss. And yes, when it's the player that you like and you stick your neck out for and you do these breakout videos and you call him your son, which was supposed to be a joke, and then he has that kind of game for you, you're like, wait, am I completely wrong about this guy? I don't like that. I don't even like doing that. But here's, here's the lesson in all of this. There's two paths, okay? There are two paths. And if Chris Paul's the guy that I think he is, he comes back, has a great game five, and maybe they win this thing in seven. Because the weird thing, too, is I, I started seeing the Booker memes where Booker's squinting, and it, it was titled, when you realize it wasn't Harden's fault all along, you're like, you're going to use Booker for one of those? The guy, game three Booker? Because game four for Booker kind of erased game three for Booker. But Booker, I don't think, has the standing although more people will put him closer to a top 10 list as a player than they would Chris Paul at this stage of their careers. But because Paul has been around this long, the point guard, Hall of Fame, and all this different stuff, I think there's an expectation of Paul that I think is actually even greater than Booker. But what we learned in the Booker example from three to four is what we've also learned before, because there are two paths. The defining moment, because if Chris Paul and the Suns blow this and Milwaukee wins an NBA title, which would be certainly deserving because of the adjustments and some of the stuff they've done and how amazing Giannis has been and Middleton's closing in a couple of these games. Let's look at two things here. Steph Curry's Game 7 in 2016. The two plays, the stupid around-the-back pass turnover and that he took a three against Kevin Love, which then turned into somehow Kevin Love, like, ate him up defensively when really Steph was like, I'm just going to try to get a three off here. Those have stuck to Steph, even though he's one ring, so it's really not that big of a deal because that's what Chris Paul falling down against Giannis is going to be if Phoenix blows this. But do you remember the Ray Allen game? Do you remember what happened in that last minute with LeBron James? He had two terrible turnovers. He hit a three. I think he missed two others. It was a bad last minute for LeBron James. And then Ray Allen hits a shot in the corner. They win in overtime. They win a title. You probably didn't remember that, do you? Maybe some of you do, but for most of us, we don't. If the Suns win the title, Game 4 will be that thing very few people ever remember. But the other path is if they don't win this, even if Chris Paul has a great Game 5 and Milwaukee wins the finals, that Game 4 is going to hang on Chris Paul. Like It's not like a chain. It's going to be a tattoo. And I don't think he has any tats. I might be wrong about Chris Paul, the player, but I'm right about what that play is going to mean. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. Anthony Slater from The Athletic covering the NBA. He's been on the Warriors beat for a while. He's also on the, the final side of this thing, so he'll be going to Game 5 as well. Big fans of his work here on the podcast. So let's start with this, Anthony. Who, what was your pick, and, and what are your thoughts now on how the series has played out? 
I remember actually writing my preview in Phoenix because you had to get there two days early because there was all these testing rules. Um, and as I'm writing it, Giannis gets upgraded for game one from doubtful to questionable. And I mean, usually that trend means, you know, doubtful to questionable is like probable essentially. And I remember that was the big question because I'm sitting there watching, um, you know, the, the two regular season matchups, he was dominant in the regular season against Phoenix, 80 points and two games. You're sitting there going, you know, n- they don't trust any of their wings to guard him. Every time he was against Jay Crowder, or Mikel Bridges right through them. Um, and he was on Aiden. He was kind of killing Aiden. Uh, you know, I think Aiden's had a really good playoffs defensively. I thought he was awesome against Jokic, probably the main reason they sweeped him. But he's he's not comfortable more out on the perimeter facing basically a wing that is his size coming downhill at him. You know, and Giannis was just kind of going by him. But coming into the series, I'm like, you know, will Giannis have that burst? Will he have that lift? Um, and in game one, I mean, he didn't really. I mean, he seemed a little ginger on that knee, a little a little bit more hesitant. He was still okay. It was, you know, you left game one going, you know, he looked, he looked good considering we saw his knee bend back like he was a running back uh, essentially in game one. And then ever since then, what we saw in the regular season and what he has been. I picked Suns in six, but I think if you told me I like this was the honest you were getting from game two through game seven, I might have gone Bucks in seven. Yeah, the Giannis thing I think is like this example of something that I always think about. Like sometimes, like I have this bigger philosophy thing where we completely underestimate how special these guys are. But then I think sometimes we overestimate the impact of injuries with certain players where if you're Giannis and you're as strong as he is and you're as young as he is and as bad as that hyperextension looks that then when somebody will like look what he's doing in game three or four and be like and this guy's still hurt and you're like well maybe he's just not hurt maybe he's just young and he recovered and it looked bad and you know the amount of guys that play like it's even like the Brady news this morning going oh Brady played with an MCL and you're like if you actually ask athletes about the MCL thing and you go there's actually a way you can get through things, maybe not a basketball player, but a stationary quarterback. So I think sometimes we we underestimate the talent gap of how special they are, but we completely like get bogged down in the injuries and and not really understand how guys can get through this. Because at this point now, like I don't even think about the hyperextension with Giannis at all. Like I don't like you can't block eight and shot like that and be I, you know, 75% because the thing about that block and granted, you know, the LeBron stuff, I'm surprised LeBron's camp hasn't issued a statement on the importance of their block. Um, the magnitude, LeBron's block was more important. Giannis's block was more spectacular because his back was to the play and Booker thought he had free money as soon as he let that thing go in the air. And for him to get that block on Aiton, I think physically, we probably should just stop asking the questions about Giannis because I think at his age, he's probably just recovered that well. Yeah, you're not thinking about the hyperextension. He doesn't seem like he's thinking about it, which is the main thing. But the block, I mean, it was like the ultimate version. You know, the cat and mouse game that, you know, I covered Draymond Green. He plays it so well. It's like, you know, you, you don't want to go too far away from the center, but you want to be a threat to, to the guy coming downhill. Um, that was like the greatest version of that I've ever seen where, he, you know, he drew the lob. It was a good lob. It was to one of the best lob finishers in the league, and he still gets back and blocks it. And, and yeah, I mean, but you also just never know because I think the Trey Young ankle tweak on a referee, which honestly didn't look that bad at the time, I think that completely changes, obviously, the East Finals. And when Trey Young does play, I think that series is decided because he doesn't have any burst or lift. And, and that's my mind going into the series of, of thinking, like, that even if he plays, this injury might completely change how he plays. It hasn't. 
it's it's athlete to athlete. I mean, it, you know, you mentioned the Brady thing. That's a good example. Didn't Philip Rivers one year play on an ACL tear yeah. in the playoffs with a big ankle or knee brace? And he played fine because how he plays too, right? I mean, he is stationary. So it's player to player. But you, like you said, I mean, we're probably to, we're definitely to the point where we don't even need to discuss like, how's he looking on that knee? Like, no, he is Giannis. Uh, you know, really full throttle right now. Better than I think I, I even saw him two weeks ago against the Nets. I mean, this is the best version of him I think I've ever seen. Um, and that's Phoenix's problem because I think other than that, like Phoenix has the advantages in this series, um, but they don't really have much ability to contain him. No, and I think that Nets series is a good example too because you're watching them offensively to get through that. Uh, they weren't going to beat Brooklyn if Brooklyn had just one of the other guys, I don't think. And what we all worry about with Milwaukee is how stale the offense can look at times where it's like, hey, Giannis, just go ahead and bail us out. And that's really what they were doing in the third quarter of game three. But Giannis also hit his free throws, you know, so that's that's part of it. You're like, oh, wait, you know, or wait a minute. Game two was, I think, the third quarter where I actually felt like I felt felt better about Giannis even in a loss because I was like, look what he did in this third quarter. So there's parts of Milwaukee's offense. I feel a little bit better about, but I, I can't help but get past the idea that it still feels like Phoenix has an easier go of it offensively. And when you give up the 34 extra possessions on the differential of turnovers, where now they're going to turn the ball over like crazy, which I want to get to with Chris Paul, obviously the big part of this interview. Um, but then the offensive rebounds, where I did think the size options that Milwaukee had was going to be a problem for Phoenix times in the series. Uh, I didn't know that it would be enough for me to go ahead and pick Milwaukee. But the plus 34 in scoring opportunities, and then it's still a close game because Milwaukee didn't shoot it well. Phoenix actually did overall. I guess I'm just feeling like Phoenix back home and that that can't repeat itself. That Again, I could be wrong here, but I even felt like in game four, I still liked things Phoenix was doing better offensively up until they were running kind of that two-man game with Middleton and Giannis, which seems to be a real problem for Phoenix and how they close the game. Yeah, you know, Devin Booker's like game from on deep twos, tough twos is maybe like the unsustainable part of Phoenix, or at least something you can't count to just be, you know, repeated in game five. Because I mean, those were really difficult shots. A game after he goes three of 14. And um, that's, you know, that's kind of been Phoenix's um, Achilles heel in these playoffs is like there are nights where him and Paul just aren't as good from twos and they shoot so many twos. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of flip side. I mean, Milwaukee, you look in the series, Milwaukee's minus 25 with Brooke Lopez on the floor. Um, I think they, you know, you mentioned they have found something. I think they found something with smaller Giannis at the five lineups. Um, but in general, you're right. 17 offensive rebounds, 17 Phoenix turnovers, only five Milwaukee turnovers. Those are kind of unsustainable numbers that, that, that lead to um, so many more possessions for Milwaukee that I don't think will, will necessarily repeat. I, I still like Phoenix going into five. And part of that, I mean, as I'm sure, like you said, we'll, we'll get to is like, I think a Chris Paul bounce back in some form is probably coming. Well, it can't be any worse. And as I spent in the open going through the turnovers and how hesitant he was, and then I was trying to figure out like he was bobbling the basketball. He had a couple Portis isolations on the other side. I'm like, what the hell is going on with him? And then, you know, after Simmons and I did the game four recap, I don't want to sit here and make it sound like I'm making excuses for him because it's like, oh, he's hurt. He's hurt. He's hurt. He grabbed his wrist. Oh, he's hurt. Because, you know, I don't, I, I, the, the wrist thing goes back to the Clippers series and then he didn't look hurt in game six. So I don't want to use that as an excuse. What did you see in game four from somebody at the very least, even if he's not making shots, you trust him. 
Um, I don't know if you think it's the Milwaukee defensive pressure, which they've certainly picked up going into game three and four, but there's times where he's even getting switches against lesser opponents. And now he's in on this really an unprecedented run of turnovers for somebody who always takes care of the basketball. It's just, it's been such an odd playoffs for him. Um, for, for a guy you consider, you know, pretty steady. I mean, it is just, he's either terrible or awesome. I mean, the Lakers series, uh, he was unplayable at times because of this like odd stinger he got in his neck, like basically right away in game one that you thought was going to basically end Phoenix's season. The Davis injury uh, allows him to survive, but really that entire series, he's not good. Booker drags him to the finish line, 47. Um, then again, in the Nuggets series, might've been the greatest mid range series I've ever seen. And I've, I covered Kevin Durant, but like what, what he did in that series against, you know, Jokic's drop coverage, including in the game four closeout, he went eight of eight in the third quarter on mid range at one point, hit 10 straight mid range jumpers. And it was like, you're exiting that series going shoulders fine. Chris Paul's in a, you know, great situation right now, heading into the Clippers series. Then he gets coronavirus at like the, absolute wrong time in his career comes back from that goes 19 of 60 in those first three games. And then I, you know, I don't know when he exactly, he suffered the, this wrist injury that he's mentioned in the Clipper series, but it did happen in the Clipper series. It might've been on the play that remember when Beverly kind of undercut him, you know, they were both kind of doing their, their own like, you know, odd stuff and he fell really hard. Anyway, he says he gets the MRI between five and six. But then in game six, 41 points, uh, zero turnovers. I mean, maybe you might say the signature performance of his career. I don't know. Um, so, I, I mean, clearly the wrist doesn't stop him from having these type of nights. And then he goes to game one. He was like, you know, I mean, not that we, we take straw, straw pulls on like finals MVP after game one, but he was the best player in game one uh, against switches, against all that. So you're feeling pretty good about him in this matchup. I mean, going into game two, your your thought is how does Milwaukee adjust to what they're doing with Chris Paul? They did, you know, Drew Holiday's pressuring more. He's going over screens. He's pestering him a bit more. Milwaukee's longer, I think, than any of these other teams in length can bother, you know, a small guard like Chris Paul. So maybe that's some of it. But I also think it's just weirdly right now I'm going to the arena night tonight just not knowing what Chris Paul is going to show up I think in game four it wasn't like oh Milwaukee was like swarming him so much he just played really poorly and that's happened in these playoffs but then the next game he'll come out and hit nine straight jumpers and and he's the best player on the floor yeah the pressure is definitely different the effort has been better for Milwaukee and I love Van Gundy's line that like adjustments adjustments sometimes the adjustment is just effort and attitude and I think that happens when you're down 2-0 and it is evenly matched like if Milwaukee had won the NBA finals I'm not gonna I was never gonna sit here and be like I can't believe that happened because the Lopez minutes it's pretty clear as we saw at the end of game one and we saw sometimes in Atlanta other than when Trey went out and Giannis was out and then it was like by desperation they needed him because both of these teams are very short in their rotation and even options um Lopez is not somebody you're going to want to I, I can't imagine Lopez closing any of these games the rest of the way you know if this goes seven I'd be surprised to see him out there closing maybe there's a weird vibe in a game where it actually turns out that way and he's hitting shots and he's giving them spacing but it isn't just about like give Milwaukee credit for adjusting the defensive pressure to him because Drew is making it tough for him to start the offense earlier the way we saw in the series but I mean Paul was just so bad that I almost feel like saying, oh, well, they're defending him so much tougher. That's that's not putting enough emphasis on how terrible he was because the turnovers were all bad. They're just bad. Like, you know, th- there wasn't, oh, hey, that was on somebody else or that was somebody else there. I guess the weird thing is when I, when I saw him deferring to Cameron Payne in big possessions late, 
that's when I'm like at home going, what the fuck is going on? Like, I, that's when I'm at home going, I can't believe I'm seeing this because that's that actually is more disappointing than a forced turnover. That's that's been the weird part about his playoffs. There have been several moments in these playoffs where I've gone just sitting there thinking like they, they'd be better with Cameron Payne on the floor right now, which you well, know, I, let's not go that far. Well, I mean, like the Lakers. Are series, you serious? Well, look, like remember the Lakers series when he when the the yes, you know, yeah, he couldn't move his right arm. Right. Um, I mean, I wasn't the only one who felt that way. Monty Williams closed in that series twice with Cameron Payne because remember Cameron Payne was kind of hot. He was giving them some juice. I and then even that, yeah. in in the Clippers series. Um, you know, they win the first two games. Really, it was because they won the first game because Cameron Payne goes 29 points, nine assists. Uh, the second game, they were kind of lucky to escape. Payne wasn't that good. But there was parts of game three and four. You're like, man, they're, they're playing really slow. And and Paul is getting to his jumper, getting switches with Morris. And he's, he's just missing everything. And you're like, I wonder if they just inject a little life with Payne. Can you get the game one Payne? Now, Payne sprained his ankle. I don't think he's been nearly as good. But I mean, you're mentioning it right there. It's just, it's been so weird because there have been moments like that. And then there have been other moments where you feel like a Chris Paul coronation is here because he's just can't miss and he's controlling, you know, the, I mean, think about game six against the Clippers. I mean, that felt like, you know, for a night, this is Chris Paul's league. So um, I, I just, it's, I don't know who's going to arrive at the arena night tonight in these playoffs. And I'm just surprised covering Chris Paul, like as closely like watching the Suns as closely as I have in these playoffs. I'm surprised I'm saying that, but I think it's kind of the truth. Anything else on this series that you're looking for? Anything else that you're, because you know, Drew, yeah, it's also I, go ahead. I was just gonna go there. I mean, like I'm surprised how 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 bad he's been offensively, and I do think he is a part of Chris Paul's struggles. But uh, what is he like? Thirty three percent overall shooting. He's in the twenties from three. Um, he's basically Eric Bledsoe on offense for them. Now he is giving them way more on the other end, and they're not. If they have Eric Bledsoe in this series, it's not two two. Um, but you know. Is a breakout coming? Do you think? I mean, does is there a Drew Holiday game that that, that changes it? Because if he if he has like a really good night, um, suddenly Milwaukee is maybe like a little bit deeper, uh, at least offensively. Before we let you bounce here, you cover the Warriors. Uh, they've got the two picks here, and then there's really a bigger kind of overall offseason segment. So instead of me just saying like, "Hey, here's all the things I think," like, give me a sense of of what you think happens here before the draft. Man, it is uh, to me. They're kind of like the the team in the next few weeks. You know, as we're talking uh, potential seismic moves, uh, seven and fourteen. I mean, I think if you ask me, what's today? Uh, we're two weeks from the draft. It's July sixteenth. I think they use both picks. Uh, I think that from ownership side, um, Joe Lacob is is being pretty transparent and like number one that he does not have this just unlimited tax bill that he's willing to go. I I, I do think there's some type of drop dead number. Um, and he, you know, he's a, he's a draft nut. He has his own big board. He studies these guys He's in these workouts. I mean, that's just who he is. Um, I, so he really likes James Wiseman. He still thinks that was a good pick. Um, he believes, do you think, by the way, do you think it was a bad pick? It's tough for me to say that because I was all about it beforehand. You know, I was saying they should pick James Wiseman. And I do think, you know, four years down the line, James Wiseman could be a really, you know, good center uh, and, and could look like a really good pick in retrospect. I do think I underestimated how raw and unready he'd be. I remember going in the draft, I was saying, um, you know, he'll play the JaVel McGee role. You play the JaVel McGee role for two seasons and then, you know, you turn into a better center. But the reality is last season, he wanted to 
hey, you know, give it to me in the mid post. Like, let me operate. And it's like, no, nah, JaVale McGee was never like getting mid post touches. It was like rim running. Um, you know, it was doing very little of the Andrew Bogut stuff. I think they made a coaching mistake, maybe misstep last season trying to like, you know, implement him into the warrior style where he's doing all these dribble handoffs and, and stuff. And it's just like, he's not ready for all that. I underestimated that he's further away than expected. And then he had all the injury setbacks, including right now he's nursing the knee. So, um, and I also, which I think you're on the same boat as me. Like I underestimated how good Lamella was going to be particularly right away. Um, yeah. If I had known that, obviously, like he would have fit the warrior style. Great. But regardless organizationally, they're still higher on James Wiseman than maybe the league sounds like they are. And particularly from the top, they're higher uh, on him. And I mean, I believe they think that that there's depth in this draft. And, and I, I just don't think they're as desperate to just give away the future as the league seems to believe. And if, you're, if the league thinks you will overpay and you won't overpay, I don't really see this home run trade out there that's going to materialize because everyone that's going to the Warriors is going to go, 714 Wiseman Wiggins contract and like that's a lot um if you're talking about Pascal Siakam in my opinion so I don't think a big trade is going to happen and then if you look at the draft um you know they're bringing all these guys in for workouts I do think there's some guys that can maybe contribute uh in the immediate but also you have a front office going you know well you might think Davion Mitchell you know could help us most next season we'd you know what if Jonathan Kaminga is there at seven which he might be it sounded like I mean you do you, you probably don't want two projects on the roster, but if Kaminga is the highest upside, I mean, there's a challenging decision to be made for them. Well, you said a bunch of stuff there, and I, I think we generally agree. First of all, they like Wiseman better than every single rumor that has him going everywhere else. Um, it, it feels like Wiseman's value around the league is lower, and I would guess the Warriors, an educated guess, is more like, well, look, we we took him, so obviously we'd like him. And as you pointed out, which I think is a big, big difference, is Wiseman would tell to a different standard, which I've been over, so I'm not going to keep repeating myself about that um, because it was a team that was still trying to win games. 7-14 and 14 in Wiseman. Okay, but now for who? Siakam, it's funny because if you ask anybody, you know, I threw that fake trade at Simmons this week and he was like ah eh. and it's like anybody that watched the Celtics Raptors series from two years ago is like lower on Siakam than any other fan base because Siakam got eaten up in that series um but he's better than that all right it was a bad series he's better than that and I think in a wide open like if you're waiting on Dame it's not gonna happen I wouldn't think uh you know the Ben Simmons part of it, I actually like that idea, but not with Draymond. So you probably have to figure out a way to like have the two of them play. But then if you're in the playoffs, that's a problem. And then it's like, okay, that means you're actually transitioning from Simmons to Draymond. And then Beal, oddly enough, like I, I still feel like Beal's happy. He's content. Happy's probably strong, content over there, but that would be something different. But he's, you know, the important thing that's always and you understand this, but it's important to remember, you can't have a ball stopper with those other two guys, with Clay and Steph. And it's why Durant actually was this perfect fit and why somebody like Paul George wouldn't have been a perfect fit with them, um, who was available to everybody when he was still back with the Pacers. So if you were to package all this stuff up, I'd be more inclined to say, hey, look, one of the picks, 7-14, and 14, the likelihood, the math tells us one of those picks is going to do nothing for you, all right? I don't know which one it's going to be, but that's kind of the, the fact that you'd hit on both would be pretty rare. So I'd be willing to move that. I'd be willing to move the Wiggins thing. I'd be less likely in a hurry to get rid of Wiseman. But if you're talking about a real special, impactful star, that's fine. But it also has to be somebody that 
understands the off-ball part of it because if that player comes in and doesn't get that, it kind of clogs up what these guys have been doing now for over five, six years. You know, I think of the names, Beal still to me remains the most likely. And it's interesting, Washington and what you know Beal and Washington have messaged out to this point that he's happy there and and you know trade request is not incoming but I thought it was interesting that when Washington fired Scott Brooks this summer which is you know that's Russell Westbrook's coach you know that that's that was kind of their like win now coach I mean however you want to say that win now to get to the eighth seed um, and then all they did this summer was hot or interview like first time head coaches i believe zero head coaching experience among their like you know vast majority of of candidates and they're going to hire somebody that feels like a rebuilding hire feels like a guy you would bring in you'd maybe like look to you know even if you can't move off the westbrook contract eventually maybe that's a buyout a year down the line they seem so ripe in a situation with a young coach to you know just break it all up and the warriors have to me the perfect package if you were trying to rebuild which is you know a couple lottery picks and a and a young center with high upside that'll help you lose games while you're trying to like kind of keep your pick valuable so to me that that if if it tilts a bad direction that seems like the most obvious fit um other than that i mean you mentioned to me Draymond Green's just where his offensive game has has regressed to um makes him an odd fit of you know, not just with Simmons, but Siakam and and really all around the league, you talk about guys like you have to play such a specific system with the Warriors, not only because look, Steph loves the off ball movement. You got to know how to back cut. You got to know how, you know, when to screen, when to move. It's why Kelly Oubre had such trouble with the Warriors this season. I mean, he's his first 20 games. He's playing bumper cars with Steph Curry off the ball while Draymond's like, hey, you know, go move. Come on. Um, and but it's just it's also Draymond Green. You, you, you can't in the modern NBA, the Warriors know this, too play two non-shooters together. It's just like almost become impossible to have two of your five players on the court unable to shoot, even if two of your other players are the two greatest shooters ever. Um, so he kind of, as good as he is and as much as he does for them, and he's still first-team All-NBA defense, and he's the heart of the you know entire you know locker room, he handcuffs you offensively. And to me, kind of handcuffs the type of moves you can make. Because the other thing, too, is that if Draymond were ever available, I'm sure there'd be owners be like winning pedigree, you know, comes in, keeps people accountable and all that kind of stuff. And then it's like, okay, but what are you going to do? I mean, I'll never forget of all the arguments I used to get into at ESPN when we were talking about whether or not Draymond was top 10 on coast to coast and Broussard's like, absolutely he's a top 10 player. And I'm like, are you serious? I go, I love Draymond, but can you imagine maxing him out and making him your number one option on another team? Like it just wouldn't, like that sentence doesn't even work. I've seen it. Uh, I covered the 15 and 50 Warriors last season. It was, uh, he was the number one option and they went 50. That's why they have James Wiseman today. Hey, Anthony, really good stuff. You can check out all of his work on The Athletic. Enjoy game five. All right. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Crown Royal. This NBA season, Crown Royal is celebrating the loyal fans that show up for every tip-off. I love every tip-off. I love every one of them. And people ask me, hey, are you tipping off tonight? Because they know that's code for are the games on? And I'll say, yeah, come on over. Bring your kids. I don't care about the audio feed. You can walk in front of the television because this time of year, the second half of the NBA, it's about family. And that's one of my favorite things about my life. Crown Royal believes if you live generously, life will treat you royally. Visit crownroyal.com to get ready for tip off. Please drink responsibly. 
Jordan Ritterkot is the man behind a new podcast series that's been out now for a few weeks, a finale coming up this week as well. It's What If, the Len Bias story. And you know, going into this, Jordan, I thought, you know, look, I remember being in New England. I remember my father coming outside as I was shooting baskets in the driveway at 10 years old to say, hey, Len Bias died. And we're talking about the 1986 draft. He was drafted June 17th. Two days later, he was dead. And I'm incredibly impressed with this podcast because it's boots on the ground reporting, the narration, the writing of it is great. The interviews are terrific. So uh, this is a story I think a lot of people think they know if you're of a certain generation. Um, younger people may not understand it, but give me the motivation behind it. Well, first of all, thank you. That That's really kind of you. And, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's, I think, like you mentioned, you you can remember Get, getting the news. And, and and I think it this is one of those stories where, you know, kind of depending on where you are generationally, it it, it resonates in, in different ways for for different people. You know, I I am of the generation where I, I was born when this happened, but I, I was too young. I was 18 months old. But I as a sports fan, you kind of I can't remember a time when I didn't know who Lynn Bias was. It, it's just one of those stories that you just even though I was too young to see him play, you grow up learning about him and learning about his death um, because it, it's just kind of so permeated kind of our, our history of, of the NBA and of college basketball. And um, it, and is one of those stories that kind of sticks with you. I, I think that, you know, for, for us, the motivation for this is... Um, it, it is in some ways, it, it's a story that feels familiar, but, but also a story that when you really take a look at it in depth all these years later, you can kind of peel back the layers of the onion and and see that this is someone whose his impact is is still with us 35 years later. And you can see that in kind of in the NBA. Um, you know, so many people we talk to in this story talk about how, you know, there's the, these obvious comparisons to Michael Jordan and a, a lot of people wanted to debate what Jordan's career might have looked like, um, if it might have looked different had had Bias lived, and if that impacts Jordan's legacy, does that impact someone like LeBron's legacy now, or or whoever the next guy is? Like it's it, it's a loss that has these ripple effects through kind of generations in the NBA, and then you also look at it outside of sports and in terms of some of the legislation that was passed in the aftermath of his death, um, legislation around kind of mandatory minimum sentencing with uh, with crack crack cocaine as well as powder cocaine, and how that is. You know, led to a lot of unjust sentences and a lot of people who were who were locked up um, many years later on uh, with, with sentences that we now view as harsh and unjust and are trying to be repealed by politicians on both sides of the aisle. Um, so yeah, it, it's a story that you know feels familiar, but also feels like it had had a lot of complexity that was really kind of calling out for um, you know th- this kind of treatment and to spend this uh, this amount of time with and uh, and and really explore kind of these all of these ripple effects all these years later. Episode two is the heavy one. Um, not that any of it's light necessarily, but um, I was listening to that recently. And, you know, you have John Sally talking about him as a friend at Five Star. And then they get to the McDonald's All-American or it was the Playball, Playboy All-American then. And there's Playboy, a, party. a Playboy party. Yeah. 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 And the guys were just sitting there getting after it. And Len was like, these guys are poisoning their body. Like, why would they do that? There was always this weird part of the Len Bias story where it was like, well, who was he? Because everybody that was close to him was like shocked and they couldn't believe like what happened. But then when we get to the night of, and he's with um, obviously Brian Tribble. And then, you know, earlier he'd been with Keith Gatlin. 
But then Tribble and a couple other guys, the guys they start doing the coke with, and he's like, I'm a horse. And Lynn Bias is like, I'm a horse. Did you ever get to the bottom of like who he really was? Did he have this small, smaller group of guys that he was partying with more? Because I remember when I was young, it was, oh, he tried it once and died. And then as little kids, we were all freaked out about it, you know? Yeah. You know, it, I think that's one of the, the, it seems like so many people, there, there are people who's kind of the, the, story that they have lived with and believed to be true for many, many years is this is the first time he ever touched cocaine and it killed him. Um, and you know, there are stories of parents telling their kids never touch cocaine. Lynn bias did it once and then he died. Um, that's exactly what it was like, by the way, to be a little kid. Yeah. Then, Cause it was just, Oh, okay. Lynn bias, this happened. Like the, the cultural impact of this night of news was pretty staggering when you think back on it, but go ahead. Yeah. And I, I've talked to people just casually telling people I'm working on this people who are not even sports fans, but who told me, oh, I, I know absolutely who he was because my parents told me when I was a kid, do not touch Coke because it killed Lynn Bias. And and so, but that that was the kind of story that a lot of people have lived with. Another story that some people have lived with is this guy had a drug problem, that this guy was was addicted to drugs. Like, but neither of those things seem to be the truth. Um, you know, it's, as we kind of dove back into it, um, it is people who he did coke with that night, um, which is Brian Tribble and then two of his Maryland teammates, Terry Long and David Gregg, testified in, in court later that they had done coke with him previously. So at least according to their testimony, this was not the first time that he touched cocaine. That said, you know, the toxicology report, um, which, you know, I, talked with a prosecutor who, who was heavily involved in, in some of the, the case that, that came afterward, um, referring to the toxicology report that made it clear that he was not a habitual drug user. So, you know, the, the truth is kind of somewhere in, in between. And that's one of the things that I think is, is kind of worth exploring, the ways that we often want to kind of latch on to kind of clean, easy narratives with a athletes or, or with anyone that is either like they're like a good kid, um, which means he would never touch drugs ever. This must have been a, a, a one-time thing. Or we want to kind of villainize them and demonize them. And um, and, and so there are kind of these two different narratives that, that took hold and two, you know, depending on who you are or where you were or how you heard the story. Um, you know, the truth is, uh, the truth is that we don't fully know. I mean, we know he was a 22-year-old kid who seem to have done have done coke before this night but at the same time you have people who are very close to him who are just adamant that they'd never seen him do drugs they're shocked that he would have done drugs and so it may be that there are some friends that had access to you know kind of this piece of him or, or, or this this side of him that that he closed off from others or it may have just been that he was still figuring out who he was and the guy who tells john sally at a playboy party all these guys even drinking alcohol or poisoning their bodies could in a span of six months have a different relationship to, to substances. I mean, he's still, he's 22. He's, he's still figuring out who he is in so many different ways. Um, but, but some of those questions kind of are, are still, are still with us. I mean, I, I will say one of the episodes, really the hardest episode to, to report the one that, that took the most of my time and just kind of wore me down was episode four, where, uh, I took just in the last couple of months, took a trip to Maryland to you know, try to get the people who were with him in, in the room that night to, to talk with me. And, you know, it sucks showing up on someone's front door to ask them about like what might be the worst night of their night of their lives 35 years ago. And, um, you know, those guys, I will say th those guys who were in the room 
ultimately chose not not to talk with me. So there, there are pieces of what happened that night that um, we still don't know. Um, but but based on their testimony, we can say that the truth is you know complicated. Yeah, I know that was probably frustrating because Tribble had done an interview with Van Pelt, who was my co-host. And I remember I didn't do the interview because it was just, look, Van Pelt's a Maryland guy. He was around then. And Tribble was talking in front of the 30 for 30 on Lynn Bias. So there is some of his story out there. And then as you have in episode two, the 911 call where it's clearly late and Tribble, I mean, it's just haunting. I know I'm not trying to bum everybody out today on the podcast, but when you just hear Tribble saying and he's slurring his words, he's like, hey, this is Len Bias. You have to get him back to life. Um, I don't know that I want to stay on on that and go into the hospital and then you have his mother join the podcast, but it's just so thorough. It is so incredibly thorough and the timeline of all of the events happen. It's just, look, the people that are close to him, it's significant, but this this time that happened, you know, in 1986, what is it about the story that you think has not only kept it alive, but there's there's this this fascination with it um, that continues yeah. on that maybe is a little surprising? I think there's a few things. Um, I mean, I, I think one is, is something that I, I can't speak to firsthand, but that when, when you hear it from other people, um, you can feel it in those conversations. And, and that is just how electric he was as a basketball player. Um, you know, talking to uh to Scott Van Pelt or or to Mike Wilbon or to um you know Bob Ryan or or Jackie McMullen or a number of other people who who you know were reporters who who saw him play or or teammates who who played with him or um you you mentioned John Sally earlier who played against him and when his fr- was his friend and they're just excited for the chance to to talk about him again because they want to describe what it was like to sit either in the arena or at home on their couch and actually just watch this guy on a basketball court. So so there I think there's something just about that, about seeing that and seeing it for a brief moment and then it's gone. Um makes you want to to revisit it um after after you've lost that experience. But I, I think also the you know that there are the ways in which just, you know, as I spoke to a little bit earlier, the the cultural impact is is still there the um you know with, with some of this legislation like when some of these laws are now being repealed today on on the state level and their efforts to repeal them on on the national level like his name comes up like politicians are talking about Lynn bias and these laws that were passed during this panic after he died and you know the kind of unjust legacy that they have and um and and hoping to to reverse them so you can see you know that that impact's still there um i i think that it's you know, there are ways in which some people are just really, really eager to revisit it and and to, like I said, you know, describe that feeling of watching him play or being being in the room with him. Um, and then there are some people who the tragedy of it just feels too, like too much to bear, and and they don't want to go back to it at, at all. Like someone like a like a Brian Tribble, who um, you know has spoken about it before. It's been more than a decade, but has spoken about it before. Um, and then at some point, it's just like, you know, this is just this brutally awful thing that happened in my life 35 years ago that is just really, really tough to revisit. Um, so I think it, it was just it landed so it, it just felt so monumental at the time that it's either a story people are just really want the chance to go back to or that they just they can't go back to because it's too painful. I think a lot of that pain, too. And, you know, it's, it's not really even important. I don't think, you know, 
removed from it because I think that's the first thing we used to do. Be like, wait a minute, is this his first time? Or is he, he was just so well liked. I think everybody loved being around him. Um, and listen to his audio in episode two where he's drafted and he goes, well, you know, the Celtics, like it's a bunch of good guys up there, good characters. They don't like bad guys. And again, it doesn't mean you're a bad guy because you tried something. You know, I, I don't believe in that. Others may disagree. Um, but he just, he was, he, I think he had to be from the area to kind of understand it. And I'm not, I mean, Scott explained it to me a bunch of different times, but there's this reverence with him. And part of it has to do with where the story ended up going, but reverence of, of the way people thought he, like what they thought he was going to be. And it just, you know, it continues to be sad every time you think about it. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting to kind of explore is the, the relationship to him in Maryland and, and then the relationship to him in Boston. Um, and it is, I think a very, very different experience in, in Maryland. It is, um, you know, Van, 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 Van Pelt talked about like this guy's hometown kid who chose to stay here, chose to represent this state. Um, he, he's the very best of us. And, and there's this sense of, you know, people feeling like they watched him grow up um, and, and feeling like he, he represented them in a way, um, not only with the way he played, but, but also, yeah, he, he, was, he was beloved by, by his teammates, by people who knew him casually. Um, you know, I talked with one of his professors who, who, who loved him, um, his college president who, who loved him. Um, and then in Boston, it was a very different kind of like it was still a sense of grief, but a very different kind of grief. It's like, uh, you know, Jackie McMullen called it like you're I think grieving the child you never had or, or something like that. Like it's, it's this loss of possibility, um, this loss of kind of a, a sense of hope of like what, you know, what he could have been on the basketball court and how he could have impacted those teams, but also what he, you know, th there's a powerful thing that happens when you have an athlete like that in, in your city who, who you really connect to and who connects back to the city and, and the loss of that in Boston, um, you know, took a very different, different kind of shape in terms of the, the grief that people felt there uh, com compared to in Maryland. But I, I think that, I don't know, juxtaposing those two is, was really interesting because there's still this, this sense of, you know, deep loss in both places. For those that are interested in the podcast, make sure you check it out. What if the Lent Bias story, Jordan Ritterkahn is the man behind it, writing it, hosting it. Um, all seven episodes are now available on the Book of Basketball feed, and the finale came out on Wednesday. So, again, make sure you check that out. What if the Len Bias story? Hey, congrats on the work on this. I can't imagine. I mean, how long did this take to do? Because this was, this was incredibly on it about well a put year. together. Yeah. About a year. Yeah. Well, um, I, hope, I hope it worked out you. for you. It's... <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it, it was long. It, it was tough. Um, it, it, it's obviously a story that's painful, um, in, in so many different ways, but, uh, you know, felt, felt worthwhile to, to explore and to, uh, you know, get to, get to dive into to what makes it such a significant story all these years later. Well, thanks again for the work on this make sure everybody checks it out. All right. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Royal Caribbean. What are you going to do for your next vacation? Beach, island hopping, hiking, a little culture? Choose Royal Caribbean and you can go on all the vacations at once. That's the point. You want to go to Greece? How about they get you there? Everywhere else. I've looked at the Alaska packages. Alaska Inside Package, Alaska Experience Cruise, Vancouver Round Trip, One Way Out of Seattle. They have it all. They make it easier for you with adventure at every stop. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Visit RoyalCaribbean.com to learn more.
This episode is brought to you by Cintas. In sports, you're always thinking of that next play. It's the same with business. Cintas has the products, people, and solutions that help keep you a step ahead. And your Cintas MVPs are the dedicated service reps who help make sure your team has what you need when you need it. They really got you covered. Cintas has workwear and apparel for almost any job imaginable. They have styles that are durable, comfortable, and great looking, and they'll deliver fresh uniforms back to your business every week. They'll deliver floor mats and restroom products and stock your essential cleaning supplies. They provide first aid supplies, safety training, and life-saving AED defibrillators. And then they'll even test and inspect your fire extinguishers, fire protection systems, and emergency exit lights. Visit Cintas.com and get ready for the workday. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. It's time for Life Advice, brought to you by V8. 30 calories sounds like a bite, a handful, or maybe even a spoonful. That definitely couldn't fill you up. But one five-and-a-half-ounce can of V8 Original is surprisingly filling and only 30 calories. Your snacks should give your body the nutrients it needs without piling on a lot of unwanted extra calories. What's up? It's Life Advice. LifeAdviceRR at gmail.com. Uh, taping here on a Friday. So, Kyle, have you ever said I'm working for the weekend? I think absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was definitely with the when I was working grounds crew. All I was like that. The median age of the five guys was like 48. Totally. Totally. I started to feel old myself. I kind of liked it. Saruti, you've never said that, right? No, absolutely not. Yeah. I feel like I've worked a lot of weekends, so it doesn't even matter. No, but I just there's a there's a there's a code amongst the laborers, right? Physical laborer guys. I think you know, I'm sure there's some cubicle guys out there too who's saying that, but I just somebody who earnestly says like I'm working for the weekend, man. I I just think that guy's a a straight shooter. And it just reminds me of the old sheetrock and crews that used to talk about sex over meatball subs at lunch break on the job site hoping that the homeowner didn't hear a sheetrocker talking about somebody he had sex with the night before, um, which was always an incredibly awkward thing because it happened a lot, actually. You know, the homeowners at the other side, you're working on an addition and some guy's reenacting a thing over meatball subs. And you're like, all right. And I remember just being young, being like, all right, this is, this is weird. What's going on? And then I'd be a little bit older. They'd want me to like, I'd be like, hey guys, you're not, um, we're not, it's not really my deal. Like, congrats to you. Congrats on your week. But uh, I'm, you know, there's a there's this woman in there washing dishes right now, who owns the house. So we could we could tone it down in the positional reenactment. All right. So that got weird at the beginning, but it just made me think about the weekend thing. All right. Here's uh here's another little tidbit. The amount of feedback. This is a top five email. The dog sitting dinner bill. Incredible feedback here. People on both sides. And that's kind of what I thought when I read the email was that um, these were cultures colliding. And the email response to it is exactly what I'd expect. Because some people think the couple that ordered apps, ordered all this stuff, were excessive and that somebody should have done something, which, again, everybody else is like the toughest person ever after the fact. They're like, I would have told them. 
And there was just more philosophical stuff being like, you just don't do that to somebody, especially you don't really know, whatever, whatever. And then there was a lot of people being like, are you kidding? So the whole tab was $400, which meant you ate, okay, maybe 100, 150 of it if they went overboard. So that means it cost you, let's say, $250 to cover them when you thought it was only going to be maybe at most 75 because all the places you were suggesting, clearly you said dive bar, drink specials, pizza, whole deal. How much was the dog boarding going to cost you? We researched this, right, guys? I think is it fair to say in a decent city, suburban area, for a weekend in the dog, is it 200 bucks? I mean, could you find it for 150? Okay, maybe. So you thought, hey, cool, I don't have to pay this. And now I'm in the black. And then you take them out to dinner. And now you're like, oh, I'm in the red, like 80 bucks. So I'm sure the emailer isn't even like listening to all this stuff because you were so convinced your way is the right way financially. And I'm not even telling you that you're necessarily wrong. I'm just saying perhaps I'm different. Others were different. And here's the deal. Like it was, it was cultures colliding. So what was the research? What did the research tell us, Kyle? Uh, well, the one thing that I, I don't really know how to respond to what was the research, but what I would say is, is when that guy, I was thinking back when that guy opened his wallet and she opened her wallet and then she kind of got gun shy at the bar. This is before the restaurant. Cause you could have saved yourself 150 bucks right there. If when she started to put her, you know, she she got a little gun shy, as, as he said, like she kind of did the performative opening the wallet and then close it back up. He he could when he noticed that he could have been like, well, you know, I'll get the dinner. You want to get the drinks like he could have said that. And that's not weird. And then you wouldn't feel weird about like, um, you know, yep. scoping out everything they ordered. Right. So he could have saved himself 150 bucks. We probably wouldn't be talking. About I meant the research on the dog boarding. Didn't we do some of that? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. 75 bucks uh, is what I saw in L.A. 75 bucks a night. A night. And then if you want a, lu- if you want a lunch meal, uh, it's another six bucks. If you want your dog to have lunch, there's a whole bunch of other things you can do. But if we're talking bare bones, yeah, 75. You got to bring night. your own lunch. If, come on. That's, that's, a, that's a veteran move to bring your own lunch. Don't let them pay for your dog's lunch. But I also think depending on the area, it could be like 35 bucks. So why, do we know where they were? I don't feel like going back and finding the email. Um, <laughs> 50 bucks is in the middle. We'll say 50 bucks. 50 bucks. So maybe it's 150 to 200, you know, but that math didn't seem to matter because he was already thinking, Hey, I got that part for free. And so, you know, whatever, like here's the dinner, like the dinner now makes it, it's not free. Look, I'm just, I'm just telling you, it was worlds colliding. I don't want to really get really pissy about it one way or another. Cause I don't really feel that way about it. Um, but here's, here's the one, like we got a bunch of responses from it. Right. And then the whole thing about appetizers came up. Like people have different rules about appetizers. I imagine there are some families, like I didn't know what the hell appetizers even were, I think, until I was like in high school. Not because like <laughs> we were so broke, but I don't know. We just didn't, he never ordered them. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't our deal as a family. Um, although I don't know, we had a ton of sit down dinners with all of us together anyway. But um, the, the whole like rules with the apps, That, like at the pizza place, what were they? Fried mozzarella? Like even at a really nice restaurant, you're going with some carpaccio or some melon and prosciutto. Like it's not the end of the world. Like people are talking about apps, not all people, but some people are talking about apps. Like you're, it's this restaurant and they're like, hey, Bezos is here. Show him the apps. Hey, did you see who's sitting there? Make sure he knows we have appetizers. 
I think appetizers for for most people are are doable. So, all right, there we go. There was a lot. There was a lot of response to that one. Okay, six four two twenty five. We'll leave the name out of this. That has been an issue again. Apologies. My birthday's coming up, and a few packages arrived at the house. My partner will smile and put them in a room. She's very excited about what she has for me, and I get it. I'm lucky she cares as much. You are. Must be nice. You get so many presents from a girlfriend. Uh, but I see where they're from, and it's not places I'm into. I usually suggest we just gift each other experiences, weekend getaways, nice dinners with appetizers. We've been <laughs> together three years, and it's always like this. She's asked me, and I've told her places I like, but it never seems to take. I assume I should just smile and appreciate the gifts, but they all sit in a closet box, and I feel like this year may be the same. Uh, is there a nice, acceptable way to tell someone you feel that they are not great gifts and kind of just a waste of money? Mm, no. Um. I have some firsthand experience with this uh, because my mother on Christmas, and this is going to make me sound so shitty, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, she buys stuff that she likes. <laughs> All right. She just does. She does. And one of her favorite things to do is like the stockings and all like the gag gift stuff that, you know, like you're checking out a TJ Maxx or Marshalls and it's those bins of just stupid stuff and they're way marked down and they'll be like, you know, these, these stupid magic trick things or, um, fake poop. I, I, yeah, not not fake poop, but like you're in the you're in the ballpark, you know, like or it'll be like a a silly hat, like an elf hat <laughs> will be in there. Um or like socks that are ridiculous that no one would ever wear. And then she watches you open it and then ev- she laughs hysterically and then everybody laughs at you because they know that you're not really going to want to wear this elf hat ever or whatever. And I've asked her about it. I said, "You know, look, it's it's just not You've been doing it a long time. You've had a good run and it's a lot, you know, I don't want you wasting your money on this stuff. And she was like, oh, I know, I know I won't do it. And then she does it. So what I'm telling you is that you're, it sounds like your girlfriend is into buying you stuff, but has this, this trait, which is something that's actually, I think kind of common is the person kind of buys the thing that they're more excited about than you are. And so it seems like it's this incredible gesture. I'm buying you this gift, but there's also like a little, it's not selfish. There's a, there's an entertainment factor that I think your girlfriend gets out of like the thing that you open and then she's telling you how awesome it is. Cause like deep down, she might want the gift. Now I'm sure it's not across the board for everything. She, you know, she's buying you like a Carhartt jumpsuit. Although I don't know, I'd, I'd go for one of those right totally. now. I don't know when I would wear it. I loved when I had mine. Um, I loved it. I love that thing. But you get the point. Like, I don't know, Kyle, Saruti, you guys, any experience with any of this whatsoever where it's a gift giver who actually is more motivated to kind of enjoy the gift as much as you are? Totally. I'm I'm like dating one right now. And every time she's really into getting me like custom wood stuff, like uh, coasters and like, and it, it's always arrives late. Oh, no. It takes like literally like a, a month after my birthday, the fucking thing will show up. And it's like Game of Thrones coasters. Or like this actually was a really cool um, uh, Breaking Bad cutting board. I mean, I don't know why it was a, the theme of the cutting board, but it was like it said, let's cook on for it. For meth, maybe? It said like, let's was cook on it. No, it was a cutting board. And, you know, I, I like cutting boards. I, you know, I ruined the first couple, throw them in the Big dishwasher. Board, yeah. Didn't know you couldn't do that. But like, yep. 
Can't. But, you know, I didn't say anything like it's always the gifts always late because it's always from like, you know, an Etsy person or or something like that. And and it's like, you know, it's <laughs> custom made. And then she's like, oh, my God, I found this thing. And and of course, I don't say anything because like my mom, who's a big gift giver, she her favorite part, she would rather give a gift than get him. And she loves like that whole thing. So I don't want to ruin that for her. And I kind of like the stuff. So I would say don't say a fucking thing. Yeah, but the problem is I think I know some buddies who and this is a strictly clothing thing, but there will be they'll be dating someone who's trying to change their wardrobe actively. Right. So they'll they'll buy them things that they think that they should be wearing, even though that's not what they wear yeah. because they don't currently like what they wear. So they're trying to sort of push you in a direction of like, I want to style you in this way. And I've had a couple buddies go through that and be like, I just I don't wear the clothes that she gets. Me. Yeah, that's so that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking here. Yeah, I I, I don't. I don't know. Um there's, there's not really much of a solution. And I think, you know, like anything, when you're buying a house, you're not going to get every single thing you need. If you want a backyard, okay, cool, but you might not have the porch or the parking situation may not be right. Or the neighbors might, you love the part of the neighborhood, but there's a weird back fence. It's the same thing with who we date and who we marry. I know. Like, I'd love a huge porch, but, you know, if the, if the property taxes are what they are, you know, that factors in too. <laughs> there's, there right. should just be, there should just be a running list though. I've always thought about this. Maybe there's like an app opportunity. Everyone should have like 10 things that they, that they need at any given time. So that whenever someone needs to buy someone something, they could just look at this list and go, Oh, I'll buy that for them. You know, like a wish list, like an Amazon wish list. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, like a registry, but just for, for a single person. Right. So instead of like hot girls on Amazon, or that have Amazon wish list and weirdo loser guys. So no offense if you listen to this podcast and you do this, but then you go to their wish list and you're like, wow, I love looking at your hot Instagram pictures. Let me now buy you a, a meat thermometer. Yep. You, you think we should expand this out for just guys. Yeah, just, just that would general. be on my yeah. list too, a meat thermometer. Totally. I would never <laughs> exactly. buy that. And I would <laughs> love for it to show up in my fucking house. So I'd be cool with cooking pork again. Like, Great pictures. Up, Great pictures from Milan. Here's Law and Order SVU season two on DVD. Uh, all right. You know what I did end up doing? And this is more the part. I just started leaving the gifts behind that I didn't want. <sighs> That's and, a dick move. Wow. Yeah. Really? And my, my sisters were like, that is one of the funniest slash also meanest things you did. And I go, look, I'm just, it's, I'm protesting the waste of money on on some of these stupid gifts and i would just like and then it became a running joke to like ryan will leave the gift behind if he knows he's not going to use like it it's like puxatani like if he sees a shadow yeah. or if, he, if the gift is there it's six more weeks of winter <laughs> wait did, did rasilla go back to vermont well i guess my family doesn't call me rasilla but uh they're like ryan go back to vermont be like yep he did like did he bring did he bring his ALF laundry basket back with him? <laughs> nope. It's still here. <laughs> I've looked at it as that way. It's like I'm already, I'm eliminating the goodwill trip because this way you guys will just be able to like use it. And if you like the Wait, ALF. What? You would take the stuff though that you did like and leave yeah. the stuff that, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it's awful. It isn't awesome. But then it became a thing. Like so I did it so often for so many years and look, I don't have my own family. So I was going home for Christmas up until, you know, my early forties and I, I don't go home now, but it was, 
it was just, it became like a thing, a tradition where my sisters thought it, then it became like the funniest thing ever that my sisters were like, I love, I can't wait to see which one he leaves behind is like a statement. Like he's making a statement about this. So, um, anyway, before everybody thinks I'm a huge jerk about it, I would like to express that I've, I've picked up the Christmas tab, um, for everybody for, for a bunch of years too. So maybe I'm, I'm not as terrible as I sound. Okay. Uh, I guess I shared a lot on that one. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Okay, we got, you know what? I'm just going to go blind here. You want to do a blind one? Sorry. Kyle sent this to me. I like the the headline. I haven't, I haven't, let's just go for it. All right, bridesmaid who gets too drunk. Hey guys, just turned 35, 6, 180, balding. Okay, after reading those statues, shocked to find out I'm getting married this fall. <laughs> Good work. Good writing. Sorry, had to make a joke before starting because this is kind of a serious situation, at least to me. One of my fiance's bridesmaid has a habit of getting drunk and then driving home and is constantly putting the rest of us in situations we don't want to be in. Most of the time she's driving home drunk. She's driving an hour away um, and she still lives in the college town most of us went to school with uh, as the group is spread out over the state. We'll call her Tiffany. Event one, after the bridal shower brunch, the girls went out, had several drinks, including shots at some point. Tiffany snuck away from the group, Ubered back to the other bridesmaid's home who'd been hosting the brunch and grabbed her keys. The host's husband walked out in the street and told Tiffany that she could stay at the house as they had extra bedrooms, couches, whatever. She wasn't having any of it and drove off back to her house. Two, uh, Tiffany, my fiance and another bridesmaid decided to meet up for drinks to catch up in the city I know uh, that I now live in. Girls Uber back to my place at about 1 a.m. where I was already asleep. At some point in the night, my fiance and the other bridesmaids took Tiffany's keys away from her. When she tried to give back her keys, my fiance and the other bridesmaid locked themselves in the guest bedroom with the keys. Tiffany started screaming and banging on the door. Obviously, this woke me up. I had to get to the other guest room. I had to, I, tr- I tried to get her to go into the other guest room to sleep it off, but she just kept screaming about how she wanted to go home and bang her boyfriend. Okay. I called her boyfriend to try to get him to talk to her, but he was absolutely useless. I took the dog and slept in my truck. The screaming ensued for another two hours until the girls just gave up and gave her back her keys. This is uh, a couple of fun nights here. Event three, we took a couple's trip. After a day of visiting wineries and breweries, we got back to the cabin we were staying in, and Tiffany decided she wanted more booze. She just took the keys to her boyfriend's truck and just drove off into town. No one knew where she went. Her boyfriend, who at this point had passed out in their room, thought his truck had been stolen. I'm sure the three events that I listed aren't the only time she's obviously not. Um, but it's starting to cause real uneasiness in our friend group whenever she's invited. How in the world do I handle this if it were to happen again? Is it better to, if the talk comes from her friends instead of me or another one of the guys in our group? What advice can I give my fiance and her group friends to tell Tiffany this isn't the way to act? I know that drinking impairs judgment. I've had my bad nights, but this is becoming more of a habit rather than a poor decision. I really don't want the end result uh, with her getting a DUI, seriously hurting herself or even worse, another person. All right, so this is really serious. Look, this is what I, I look. She's obviously um, has some serious issues with drinking. Okay, but I think everybody here's here's the real problem is that whatever her thing is is when she's blacked out and she's at that far end of everything and super banged up. She doesn't want to throw in an Almond Brothers CD. She wants to get in her car and drive every time. So whatever her programming is that goes on in her head, her move, as you pointed out here, and clearly she's this is her habit. Is she, this is what she's going to do. I had a friend like this, all right? He would drink late night with us and then he would just hit a point and then everything would kind of shut down and then he would be like, okay, I'm going to get in my car and drive home because that's all I want to do. He wanted to get in his car and he wanted to go sleep in his own bed when there was always a million other options. And that's the thing that's so shitty about people that do this all the time now is it's just like, look, you have all of these other options. There are always all these other options. 
And it doesn't matter. There's no reasoning with this person, obviously. I mean, for two hours did not give up and keep screaming while people are locked in a room. Like this is this is screwing up everybody else's deal here. Um, so again, the one friend that this goes way back, we were hanging out late one night. You know, I could always walk back to my place, so it wasn't ever an issue. And he got in his car and look, the sun was coming up. It was kind of like one of those weird, you know, old school back in the day bartending deals, you know, from my 20s. And he drove to a breakfast place on the way back to his house, pulled in. I mean, obviously, everybody knew when he sat at the counter, he was a mess. He sat there, ate a full breakfast. And then they were like, wait, are you driving? And they were like, please don't. We'll call you the cab. Please, you know, just get in a cab. Like the diner was trying to help him but it was such a disaster. They were like, no way. So he got in his car, told them all, cause he's just, he's just not, you're not thinking straight. Your things are shut down. You know, it's, it's the single mindedness of being that banged up where you're not even thinking you're doing anything wrong. You're just like, everybody leave me alone. Like, I just want to get behind the wheel. And clearly in this case, like that's all that's happening. And so then my friend, you know, drove back, made it to his house. And as he pulled in his driveway, guess what? There was like, two cruisers right behind him because the diner called the cops on him. They should have called the cops on him. He got a DUI and that was his wake up. And, you know, he, he figured it out very quickly right after that because everything about him was great. He was a great guy. He was, but he was, he had a thing where he always wanted to drive. So clearly Tiffany has something in her with her, her wiring that once she's that banged up, all she wants to do is drive. And it's, it's scary as hell. I don't know. She's going to listen to any of you. She might need that moment um, where hopefully if that moment's bad, it's only her that she's hurting. But I would straight up just say, hey, you're not invited to any stuff anymore. You're not. And maybe that'll be enough, but it probably won't because she's younger. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't really know what else to add to it. Other than she's like, if she's banged up, there's no point in ever talking to her. You've already given us evidence. She's not going to listen to anybody here. And it's in look, it's, it's a little bit more than her just driving drunk. It seems like, and then I also think it point out like the boyfriend part of this. It seems like he's down with whatever this, this program is. So she's not getting pushback from him either, but the only way you can even put a dent in trying to solve this, which again, my guess would be, you're probably not going to would be when she's sober um, be like, Hey, just so you know, you're not invited to any stuff anymore. You're just not. And see how she takes it. Unless, unless you like her so much that you don't want to not invite her to stuff, which I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen at the wedding. Something's going to happen. So I don't know. Good luck. Yeah. The good news about it is this is absolutely something you can talk to her about. You don't have to feel weird about talking to her about it. Like it's not, it's not as hard. It's not as hard as saying like, Hey, your gifts kind of suck, but I love you. You know, it's, it's way easier. Like this is not all right. That's It's like, it's definitely any, no, you're anyone's saying, qualified right, to you're talk to her, bring it up to her when she's sober. Like, it's not a difficult thing to talk about. Well, I, I think what you're saying, just so I'm hearing you is that there's an awkwardness of saying you don't like presence. There's no awkwardness in saying, hey, you keep making these horrible decisions. Yeah, exactly. You have to stop doing exactly. this. Right. I just want to make sure people understood what you were saying there. I don't know. I, I kind of put you in a bad spot by reading this one because it's not like you guys are going to jump in and be like, well, hold on. Because <laughs> like, there is no, there's no, no but other I think the side. In, the interesting question would be, does the listener uh, and the guy writing in 
is he obligated to say something when it's it's his I don't think it's his direct friend, right? Like he hangs out. It's his wife or the fiance's bridesmaid. Yeah. So yeah, like I don't know. I don't know. In that situation, I'm not sure. Yeah, not for him. Probably going to be a tough scene for him to just you know approach this girl who he casually knows and be like, hey, you know, you have a problem when her other friend should probably be doing that. Yeah, I don't think it's on the emailer. I think you're right. Um, But clearly, like she can keep doing this stuff, and everybody likes her enough. Um, I think the reference here would be she still lives in the college town that most of us went to school in. So it sounds like these people have all been friends here for quite a while. If he says he just turned 30, so, you know, they're almost a decade out of college and they're still in the mix. And she's a bridesmaid. She's obviously very close to the fiance. So um, not getting invited to stuff because you're a mess can hurt. You know, it, it can really hurt. I know for a fact there was somebody that I was hanging out with and then I was like on, I got the save the date and then I never got the invite. Because the person I was hanging out with, the couple didn't want to bring, didn't want me to bring. So they were like, well, instead of Rosilla bringing this person, because they'll have to, um, <laughs> it was, it was very obvious. I was like, wait, I got to save the date, then didn't give the invite. And I just sort of let it go. Cause I was like, whatever. Um, at that point in my life, I was like, I don't really care anyway. And then like I addressed it. I was like, Hey, was that because of, of who I was hanging out with at that time? Like you just thought like your wife didn't want her there and he was like yep i was like you guys fucked up by sending the save the date he's like well yeah he's like we did we did he's like i'm really sorry about it like yeah it's fine like i just i just like to get to the bottom of it even if i don't really care that much i just wanted closure on it so um that person honestly this isn't even the best example of it because they weren't close enough to it but if these are your core people and they kind of all the bridesmaids, you know, on the fiance side and your registry, I don't think it's on the emailer here, but just go, Hey, look, we love you, but you have this pattern. It's a disaster. We don't want it at our wedding. So you're not coming done and done. And she'll probably sit there and maybe she'll yell or she'll say like, Oh, maybe I won't drink. I don't know. I don't know. Good luck with that one. But that's uh, that's a shitty situation. I feel like that's not a great one to end the, end the pot on to go into the weekend. As far as a blind one, that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It have been fun. way worse. It could have been. It could have been. Okay, there you go. Life Advice is brought to you by V8. One five and a half ounce can of V8 Original is a surprisingly filling snack and only 30 calories. What's even better is it's small, convenient size, so it's easy to throw in your bag and have it on the go. Give your body what it really needs, minerals and antioxidant vitamins and no added sugar. Enjoy the weekend. Uh, Bill and I will be back after game five, and I have Dan Patrick scheduled for next week as well on the podcast so fire it up please subscribe you won't miss anything and leave a nice little review for kyle because he needs the ego boost This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... 
once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. 